Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Compliance Guy. I'm Sean Weiss. And as always, I want to start off by saying thank you all so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with me and my special guest for a little while as we get to talk about compliance. But today, we're going to kind of shift a little bit. And even though a lot of you who are listening may not be attorneys, this is still such an important case. Whether you're a practice manager, a compliance officer, a risk manager, a physician, a non-physician practitioner, and especially attorneys. This is such an important discussion today. And I'm joined by uh, a, a guy who's actually become a good friend. I've, I've had an opportunity now to work with uh, Colin Callahan of Flannery Gorgalis on uh, a couple of um, federal cases now. Really an interesting um, uh, character, and you're going to enjoy getting to know him just as I have. Um, Colin's a former federal prosecutor out of the Western District of Pennsylvania, I think specifically Pittsburgh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and he That's right. Ser- yeah, and he served uh, both in the uh, civil and criminal divisions. Um, since uh, getting away from the evil empire and coming to the uh, rebellion side, uh, he focuses his practice. You like that little Star Wars uh, kick there? Um, <laughs> he focuses his practice on defending individuals and organizations in a whole wide variety of uh, highly sensitive matters. Uh, he conducts a lot of internal investigations for institutions and corporations. And again, with his broad experience um, in representing clients in complex uh, criminal and civil and regulatory matters involving uh, allegations of healthcare fraud, false claims act violations, public corruption, government contracting fraud, uh, securities fraud. But where I thought Colin would be such an outstanding guest for this topic today is that he has extensive experience in matters affecting licensed medical professionals, including cases involving Controlled Substance Act violations, opioid diversions, and billing fraud. So, Colin. My friend, it's good to see you. Welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, carving time out. I know you're, uh, I think you're in a litigation now, or you're actually in a proceeding up in uh, Ohio, if I'm not mistaken, you were telling me? On the road today, but uh, very happy to talk with you. Uh, f- feeling feeling a little bit uh, intimidated by the great radio voice, podcast voice that you have, uh, but uh, oh. uh, excited to talk about our topic today. Well, I appreciate it. My wife and all my friends tell me I have a face for vid- uh, for uh, audio. So, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. So today, today we're talking about the um, Supreme Court ruling that came down on June 27th. And for those of you that are not familiar with this case, it is um, Doctors Ruan and Khan. 
They were the petitioners of the Supreme Court. Now, what's really interesting in, in this case, well, there's so many things that are interesting, right? And, and we'll talk about Justice Breyer and his majority opinion and sort of where he stopped short um, in remanding the case back to the district courts. <clears throat> but what the impact of the Supreme Court's ruling has had on current pending cases and what it could mean to providers who have already been indicted and or convicted of a violation under the Substance Control Act. Um, I, I and, and I'll talk about it a little bit later on. Um, it This ruling had a profound impact on the federal case that I just came off of, uh, where the ruling, you know, the jury ruled uh, not guilty on 54 counts against these four physicians in Detroit, uh, better known as the Bothra case, which was a $500 million case. But with that said, Colin, it's so good to see you. Thanks for uh, hanging out with me today. And um, let's get into talking about the Ruan case. So um, as a former federal prosecutor and somebody who has extensive experience in the Substance Control Act, can you kind of talk about um, what it was that led Drs. Ruan and Khan to actually being found guilty in their trials and then we'll kind of explore, you know, where the Supreme Court took issue with jury instructions and things of that nature. And, you know, uh, the, the sort of underlying facts for uh, uh, Ruan and Khan are, are actually interesting here. Um, you know, because I'm not sure that the matchup with uh, the the case profile where this is going to have the biggest impact, right? Uh, so, you know, there's, of course, disagreements in the appellate record about exactly sort of what what was or wasn't sort of a trial for, for Ruan, for example, an example there. Uh, but, you know, this, this was a circumstance where, uh, you know, the government had, you know, from my from my view, some some facts that were, uh, you know, pretty decent facts in certain in certain respects, at least. Uh, you know, for a CSA case, uh, you know, their uh, allegations here were uh, they'd identified more than 300,000 prescriptions for a four-year period. I think from an analytics perspective, if I recall correctly, uh, he was sort of a, a 90th percentile sort of outlier in this particular type of fentanyl that typically is used for uh, treating individuals with, um, you know, end-term cancer conditions, um, you know, where the, the pain can be, that they're, they're undergoing is just really extreme. Patients, uh, at least, you know, whether or not a jury with proper jury instructions would have credited this is a different matter, but that his prescribing practices were directly related to sort of feeding his own pecuniary interest, right? So that, in other words, um, you know, the, the practice was operating, at least from this prescribing perspective, to make money for patients, not actually to sort of, you know, practice medicine. Um, you know, Dr. Khan, along the same lines, there were allegations that he had sold controlled substances for cash, uh, or at least in a couple of instances, I think the government, if I remember correctly, had, had suggested uh, for firearms. Um, and, you know, there, I think they had alleged that he wasn't performing any physical exams, um, you know, or do documenting or falsifying encounters. Uh, and, 
you know, I think it's interesting in the sense that th these are the cases that get to the Supreme Court where, you know, if the government facts, like if a jury thought that that was actually true, you know, Khan, for example, um, you know, hey, you're you're just basically using your prescription pad so you'll give me cash uh, or oftentimes we see sex, um, you know, or firearms. Well, that isn't practicing medicine, right? And so it, it almost wouldn't matter sort of what, you know, the, the decision in the case would, would be if that were true. I don't know if it's true. Um, but nonetheless, this is sort of gave us to get this sort of broader question sort of answered. Right. Uh, and, you know, just I'll fr frame the question is essentially, does the government have to prove up a subjective, um, uh, a subjective belief on the behalf of the prescriber that they were wrongly dispensed? dispensing these pills and, right? and and so so let's kind of talk about this for a minute right so there's a provision of the controlled substance act which is codified at 21 uh usc section 841 i think 841 was the main subsection of the code that they focused on right and what it specifically says in there is that for any person knowingly or intentionally to manufacture, distribute, or dispense a controlled substance such as an opioid, right? So that's that's sort of what this whole thing centered on. But the question that was put before the Supreme Court, and, and I will tell you, <clears throat> I think Justice Breyer, in my opinion, I think he did a masterful job at writing this, this majority opinion. I really do. Um, I've, I've never been a huge fan of justice Breyer. Um, but as he's, um, as he's progressed on the Supreme court, I think he has found a very middle of the road kind of voice of reason, if you will. And, um, this, this written opinion, I think, you know, is, is just a brilliant, brilliant, um, example uh, and if I'm not mistaken, I think this was one of his final, uh, I think this was his final majority opinion that he wrote prior to his, um, his re retirement. <clears throat> it might well be. But, it was certainly one of the last. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, what the statute talks about here is the fact that registered doctors have a right to prescribe substances to their patients. I think we would all agree with that, but as it's provided by regulation, a prescription is only authorized when a doctor issues it for legitimate medical purposes, meaning that they're acting in the usual course of his or her professional practice, right? And, and you can find that under the Code of Federal Regulations at subsection 1306.04a. Now, to your point, Colin, what you were talking about is the fact that you know, were these physicians acting in the best interest of their, their patients? And were they prescribing mm -hmm. these in accordance with generally accepted standards of medical practice? Were they in compliance with the Substance Control Act? And, you know, the, the, the question that went before the Supreme Court um, concerns the state of mind that the government has to prove in order to convict physicians for violation of the statute because they they hold that the statute's 
and and this is what's so important in my eyes and and, and you tell me if I'm, I'm i'm on the right track that it comes down to knowingly or intentionally right and and that it applies to the the authorization of and they call an, a, a prescription an authorization right that's really how they look at it so the the, the question becomes you know from the general prohibition on dispensing controlled substances you know did the defendant's state of mind demonstrate that they intentionally or knowingly were prescribing outside of what would be considered reasonable acts am i am i on the right path for you know, oh, what I'm thinking yeah. about how to. Okay. Yeah. Although, you know, I, I'll say, right. I mean, the, the very fact that it is, I mean, there's guys I know, Sean, right. And, and, uh, I'm not oh, the, come on. Stop. I'm not the dumbest at least. And, but like when you, when you say like normal people and to explain sort of like, well, what was the standard before, you know, Ron, what is it now? It, it takes you like nine sentences to try and like actually articulates or what the standard is that we're, I think is part of the problem, right? I mean, you have these regs that talk about uh, prescribers can in fact prescribe controlled substances. And, you know, what those regs have come up with are these rather amorphous concepts to begin with, you know, for a legitimate medical purpose, you know, quote unquote, and acting practice, quote unquote. And, you know, I obviously have my priors here, but the idea that like you start with those amorphous concepts and then potentially you weren't even going to have a knowing and intentional standard concerning their violation is problematic from a statutory construction perspective, but it's also problematic from larger concepts, you know, in criminal cases, right? I mean, we've got void for vagueness concerns that I think are kind of lingering around the, the perimeters of these decisions, you know, uh, where if the court had not interpreted it the way they they did i think evil concerns and i think you know we'll probably talk at some point here too you know the amount of prosecutorial discretion that you give the government with with something this broad without sort of any guardrails in place is also very concerning yeah and and you know i'm so glad you brought that up because a, a lot of folks don't understand and and let's let me let me specifically talk to the non attorney folks that are listening to the sure. podcast because there's something that is referred to as prosecutorial discretion which basically colin as a, a prosecutor during his years in pennsylvania and pittsburgh as a prosecutor he had to use his discretion to make a determination as to whether there was enough evidence in his favor that he could use to convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that the um, the defendant violated a statute, a law, an act, whatever it may have been. And if he didn't feel as if he had that evidence, then obviously he could look to try to get them to a plea agreement or, you know, something along those lines, because obviously going to trial is a crapshoot, right? Because there's so many factors, right? You know, you could go through a Vordar process and you think you have the best possible jury and, you know, they turn on you. Um, and, you know, it, it, and, and I've seen it so many times in court where 
you know, the the defendant could be as guilty as the day is long, but because they despised the personality of the prosecutor and they connected more with defense counsel because they were more humbled or whatever it is, that the prosecution, even with all the facts in their favor, didn't get the verdict that they were hoping for. I mean, I, 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 I'm sure you've seen that where you as a prosecutor one cases where you're like, eh, you know, this is kind of a, it's, it's a toss up on this one, but the defense attorney, you know, just blew it. Right. You know, they gave horrible openings, horrible closings. They were terrible at cross or at direct, you know, they were objecting to every single question that came out of the uh, prosecutor's mouth. I mean, but, but prosecutorial discretion to me now when it comes to a CSA case is even more critical than it was before, because it's not about accountability, right? It's not about the prosecutors having accountability. It's about them being aware of, they have the ability to use their discretion as to whether or not to pursue trial, right? That's right. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think there's a couple, I think about prosecutors, a couple components and, and without question, that includes what you were just talking about, you know, every every prosecutor has to really think carefully when they're you know is this is this a case that i could prove beyond a reasonable doubt um you know and then there's a second step i think which is is this a case i should endeavor to prove beyond a reasonable doubt as well right and you know i there's a lot of really good prosecutors out there they're not all great but uh, there's a lot of really good ones um you know a goodly number of them yep. are friends of mine uh even after they you know beat me in a case or, or vice versa. Uh, and, I, and I think being both of those inquiries seriously, um, you know, and, and want to sort of do justice, you know, um, quote unquote, um, you know, and, and I, I think that's good. But, you know, where you have an, a standard that this, that this amorph inquiries of your prosecutor, um, you know, are, are more challenging and they're, they're subject to a lot more disagreement with the defense bar and, and, and the rest of us, right? Because, you know, for a legitimate medical purpose and professional practice, if it's not a sex for drugs case, if it's not like a true pill mill case, right, where people are walking in, handing over cash, and then, you know, you get your oxy and you walk back out the door, those are very fact-dependent sort of inquiries to begin with. And when we were dealing pre-Ruan with a split across the circuits as to sort of how you were supposed to analyze these things, and previously, the, the prosecutors and the government were saying, well, it's an objective standard, right? And by that, I mean, they were saying is whether a reasonable doctor would have viewed this particular, you know, prescriber's practices as improper. Right. That discretion gets huge, right? Well, what, what is the reason? What, you know, what, <laughs> what does Colin Callahan, former political science major, think a reasonable doctor, you know, would think about this small town West Virginia doctors, you know, attempt to treat the pain of people that have real conditions and has it, you know, crossed a line. That's too much discretion, I think, is, is kind of, you know, to, to my point, um, even if they're trying to do the right thing, you can't just vest that in sort of a lay person process. So going back to the trials for Ruan and Khan, right? Yeah. The the government argued 
that the doctor's prescriptions failed to comply with the standard that we're talking about, right? Right. And on the opposite side, the doctors argued that their prescriptions did comply and that even if it did, even if they didn't comply, the doctors did not knowingly deviate or intentionally deviate from the standard, right? The standard of prescribing. And I, I think one of the things to me that was very interesting and, and, and I think this is sort of where the case turned in favor of Ruan, and, and I really want your opinion on this, is that mm. at, at trial, Ruan's, Ruan's defense counsel asked for a jury instruction that would have required the government to prove that he subjectively knew that his prescriptions, and everybody knows the term subjective, right? Open to interpretation. That he subjectively knew that his prescriptions fell outside the scope of his prescribing authority. But the court rejected his request, which I was, I, I didn't know this at the time until I read the, the, the Supreme Court decision. And what, what the district court did instead was to set forth a more objective standard, right? A more definitive standard, standard, which instructed the jury that a doctor acts lawfully when he prescribes in that term in good faith as part of his medical treatment of a patient in accordance with the standard of medical practices generally recognized and accepted in our country. And then the court went on to further instruct the jury that a doctor violates subsection 841 when the doctor's actions were either not for a legitimate medical purpose like we were talking about or were outside the usual course of professional medical practices and because the the judge refused that subjective instruction the the um trial court the jury convicted ruan and the trial court sentenced him to over 20 years in prison and ordered him to pay millions of dollars. So in your opinion, you know, one, do you think that's where the case, you know, at the Supreme Court turned in favor of Ruan because of the lack of maybe a due process by the court? Well, I think the jury instruction was the thing. Yeah, so I I completely agree with you there. because it, it really, it teed up expressly, had become uh, a circuit split in the underlying courts of appeals. And so, you know, the, the Supreme Court hadn't uh, ever squarely tackled this issue you know, previously. Uh, you know, the last time that the Supreme Court had really looked at, uh, you know, the CSA, I believe it was in the Moore decision, which which was on sort of slightly different components here. And so you, you had seen different geographic areas of the country, right, that, which is the way our, our circuit courts are, are divided, um, reach different conclusions on these issues, and then um, Court of Appeals sort of guidance at all. So the Ninth Circuit, previous to Ruan, uh, you know, had, had essentially already adopted a subjective good faith standard, which is where the Supreme Court ultimately ended up circuit and a number of other circuits across the country previously had essentially it with slightly different language you know more or less bought the the argument that the government had it, it typically advanced in these cases which was well no 
and by objective standard, really what the government, I think, was saying as a practical matter. Uh, but I, I think they were really saying, look, it, this isn't all that different from a uh, medical malpractice case. You fall below the standard of care with your prescribing. Maybe you got to fall below it, you know, a little more than normal for malpractice. But if you fall below it, even if you thought you were doing the right thing, that's enough potentially to be a criminal CSA violation, um, you know, and and it takes seven sentences to sort of articulate the government's, you know, previous position sometimes on those issues. But that's really what it boiled down to, in my view. Uh, jury instruction, to your point, Sean, you know, really kind of teed that up um, very clearly for the court uh, because that jury in Rouen uh, convicted him without ever sort of hearing that they did have to make a determination about what he subjectively thought and, you know, believed about his prescribing. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and the Supreme Court, again, I'm, I was just so fascinated with Breyer's majority uh, opinion. Mm. You know, when when you start to take a look at his concluding statements, right, they looked at several things. One was the term vicious will, right? And in vicious will, basically what they talk about is the fact that wrongdoing must be conscious to be criminal, right? And there's case law, Morset v. United States. Um, there's Alinus v. United States. There's, there's plenty of case law on this where it talks about. And what they've, what they've indicated is that consciousness of wrongdoing is a principle, right? So as a universal and persistent immature systems of criminal law as belief in freedom of the human will and consequent ability and duty of the normal individual to choose between good and evil i mean think about that statement right i mean i mean that what they're basically in and, and this is my interpretation and i'd love to hear yours what they're basically saying is look you got to make a determination between whether or not somebody is demonstrating good intent versus whether or not they're an evil doer and you have to be able to subject you have to be able to separate things in order to make a determination as to whether or not there was a vicious will on the part of this provider and you know for me you know it it, it, it goes on and they talk a lot about you know the fact that you know when a statute is not silent as to a mens rea but instead includes a general scienter provision, the presumption applies with equal or greater force to the scope of that provision. So when I look at this, you know, basically, Justice Breyer is trying to really simplify this thing by saying, you got to choose between good and evil. And mm -hmm. if you can't prove that somebody acted with malicious intent or a, a vicious will, then they didn't act in a criminal nature. I mean, am, am I am I oversimplifying that? No, I, I mean I think it's a good way of thinking about it. And, and you're you're certainly spotting a long line of cases talking, you know, about basic criminal law principles. Uh, you know, it, I think Justice Breyer talks about it as this long-standing presumption. Uh, you know, to 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 start with that when Congress writes a criminal statute, it, it incapable mental state that attaches to it. Um, you know, as a general matter. And then, you know, here where the, those 
paradigmatic words that, that then tell you even more specifically um, that it that it applies here. Um, you know, that's that's essentially not a hard case for all the reasons that, you know that from a bigger picture, you know, we're we are intending as a society to sort of you know place criminal culpability in a particular category, and that it's not something that can happen lightly uh, because of all the attendant you know consequences that go with it. Um, you know, and and I think you know it's not necessarily discussed here in Breyer's opinion. Actually, Alito's concurring uh, opinion kind of gets at some of this stuff more. Um, you know, there are other ways to deal with, have, um, you know, in the doctor context, sort of slip below the standard of care, right? You know, being a bad doctor can have lots of other consequences. Making bad prescribing decisions can have lots of other consequences. I both know <laughs> all about that. Um, you know, you can lose your livelihood, you can lose your license, you know, you can be sort of sued by, uh, you know, private citizens, uh, you know, all, the full panoply of, of everything else that goes with it. But when we're talking about, you know, criminal statutes and, you know, the potential loss of liberty that comes with them, you know, you got to bring more, right? There has to be sort of that, that, that mens rea, a culpable state. So one of the interesting things for me is that Justice Breyer and the Supreme Court, they stopped short of overturning the criminal conviction. Why do you think they did that? Well, I think it comes back all the way down to um, sort of what you had said before, right? Is that, you know, the, the thing that teased this up in the first place is, is really sort of the... Um, uh, jury instruction that was denied, you know, sort of how that would impact then, uh, you know, how a proper jury instruction would or wouldn't sort of impact the, you know, the conviction on a go forward basis. And, you know, those are, those are more fact dependent sort of issues and questions, right? And so, you know, I think the Supreme Court here felt like it had done its duty by clarifying 10,000 foot, uh, you know, standard. And then at that point, it's sort of for the lower courts to sort of take back over and resolve those issues. So, you know, that that wasn't necessarily surprising to me, um, although, you know, uh, obviously it'll be interesting to sort of see how things play out going forward for these two particular uh, defendants. Yeah. So if you look at the very final paragraph of the opinion by Justice Breyer um, for the majority, it, it, it says something to the effect of that, you know, Section 841, right? So knowingly and intentionally, right? That's what we've been talking about. Knowingly or intentionally, mens rea applies to the except as authorized clause. So again, it means that in that Section 841, prosecution in which a defendant meets his burden of production, yeah. the government has to prove, as I said at the very beginning in what you were emphasizing that the government has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant knowingly or intentionally acted in an unauthorized manner. And because the government couldn't meet that burden of proof, right, or that standard, the Supreme Court vacated the judgment judgments of the courts of the appeals and remanded the case for further proceedings consistent with what they determined as their opinion. So to your point, right. it, 
these things are going back to the district courts now and the district courts now have to figure out what do we do here and sure. i i believe as a lay person you know these physicians are going to have they're going to walk they're going to have to walk i mean i i think that is certainly plausible um i i will say uh, it, it's not beyond the realm of possible, um, you know, that you could see a retrial here. And, you know, if, if you have a retrial, I just never make any assumptions as what a jury might do. Uh, but, I, but I hear you. And, and that's where, you know, sort of, I, 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 I can't speak to sort of what, how, how persuasive the government's proof actually is, right? right. It's easy to make allegations in any given case. It's, it's a hell of a lot harder to, to actually prove them up for trial. Um, you know, but uh, if it were true that Dr. Khan, you know, was exchanging sort of, you know, Oxycontin or whatever the the, the drug of, of that day was for, you know, firearms and cash could actually prove, who knows if they can, that people were literally walking in, there's no physical examination happening, you know, whatsoever before they sort of get those things. Well, you know, those are facts that, if true, you could probably send under the new standard, right? Um, yeah. You know, and, and out here in Pittsburgh, you know, uh, we've seen plenty of cases, you know, o- over time, both when I was a prosecutor and now, where, you know, the the synchronon, if you will, of the case was, uh, you know, the text message from the doctor saying, if you want your oxy, then I want my fill-in sex act, right? Well, so, um, you know, those cases are all going to still move forward, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, uh, and 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 I listen. I am I am of the mindset that if if somebody like Dr. Khan, right? right. And again, these are allegations, okay? But if somebody like right. Dr. Khan is trading sex for drugs or firearms for drugs, then obviously that's that's outside of an authorized use of the prescriptions. Right. And a, a jury should find him guilty and he should be convicted and he should be sentenced appropriately. Right. But in Ruan's case, you know, where none of that is the allegation, it's that he was an overprescriber, right? Or he was prescribing, you know, this, this specific type of fentanyl that's really only used here for these kind of patients. Well, again, I think it comes down to the treating physician making their clinical judgment as to what they believe was the best course of, you know, uh, treatment for the patient. So I think think that's right, Sean. And and the other thing I just wanted to get on the table, you know, yeah, please two two shotgun blasts kind of went off, you know, uh, this year um, in this space. Right. So the Ruan decision is is enormous, but we also have, you know, sort of the CDC uh, rethinking its guidance in this area. So, you know, uh, in, almost every case that wasn't a sex for drugs case or something that's you know more in that camp um you, you know that, that would get to a trial the government would lean very heavily on what had been the 2016 cdc guidance on opioid prescribing right. and you know, we would typically see uh experts for the government up in court and and walk through you know what they would view as red flags from prescribing behavior areas where you know, the doctor who was the defendant had, you know, purportedly not acted consistent with this six guidance from the CDC. 
And so, you know, uh, the C many of the people that wrote that 2016 guidance had long ago sort of said, you're misusing it, government. These weren't meant to be sort of firm and fast rules. These were things to think about, general sort of guideposts. But, you know, the, the uh, treatment decision has to always be about the individual. Well, you know, the CDC finally released uh, draft new guidance um, that, that really makes all of those you know, the walking back of some of that stuff more express. Um, and so, you know, the go forward here, you know, in, in Rowan or Khan's cases specifically, or for just all the other cases out there that are pending or, you know, that were perhaps going to be brought, you know, the government now has to deal with a new standard. Objective belief is clearly now something uh, that a jury has to make a finding on. But they also have to deal with, you know, uh, a complete change, in my view, uh, of the primary that their experts had been, you know, using in many cases to sort of say that this doctor's prescribing practices were, you know, beyond the scope of, of uh, medical practice. And so those two things together and the way the government is going to have to think about these cases, I think changes completely. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and I'm telling you, I wish I could have been in court the very last day with Ron Chapman in the Bothra case. Because I'm telling you, the I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the, the prosecutor in that case on the last day of trial resigned his position and left. Um, I did not know that. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he resigned his position and left the prosecutor's office. Um, but hmm. it was interesting because the judge who, I got to tell you, I've been in a lot of trials. Um, this judge was outstanding i mean i ron ron is getting me a copy of the transcript because some of the stuff that the judge actually said in in the trial during my portion ron was like how <laughs> you know i mean this guy's talking you know this guy's literally in front of the jury and and the prosecutor saying um hey i see you're going to be up in the marquette area let me know when I know all the best places, you know, the fraternity houses, the sorority houses, we'll go have a steak and a drink together. And I'm sitting there going, wait, what? And like the, the prosecutors are all sitting there going, what in the world is going on? But, you know, for me, the judge, you know, had to literally say to the jury, this is the first time ever. I'm having to give these kind of instructions mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because the, the the ruling just came down from the Supreme Court. And I mean, on all the healthcare fraud stuff, I think the government knew they were up a creek without an oar. And I think they were really hoping that it was the, the uh, substance, substance Control Act violations that would land them the guilty verdict that they were hoping for. And, you, you know, Ron said you could just feel the air being sucked out of the room on their side when he had to read these instructions to the jury about what it meant from a subjective mindset. And right. I mean, and, and, and now, you know, I have other cases that are going on. Mm -hmm. um, I have another huge one that's going on. I'm not going to say where, because I don't want to violate any gag orders or anything like that. But, you know, my understanding is the prosecution now wants to drop the case. 
they don't even want to go forward. And even the healthcare fraud statute stuff that's tied to it, they don't even want to touch either. They just yeah. want this whole freaking thing to go away. And 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 I think we're going to see more of that, right? I, I think so. And, and you know, I mean, again, just to be clear, too, like, I mean, I, I think that's encouraging because, you know, it's it's good examples of, you know, what are principled prosecutors adapting to a new legal standard and then I think making the right, correct decisions to not pursue cases that, you know, were viable three months ago and that, that aren't now, you know, cause I, you know, you can't chart, you can't really blame the prosecutor operating in the 11th circle, uh, who says, this is the law of the land in my, you know, jurisdiction. I've got bosses where, you know, this is a, you know, area that since the, the public health emergency was you know, declared in 2017, this is an area department of justice. I'm going to go forward. And, you know, if I think this investigation gives me the proof in these, I, I gotta, I gotta go. Um, you know, so I, I get why they did it before, you know, now we have clarity because of the Supreme court, we've got these new standards from the CDC, um, you know, it's a new paradigm. And so, you know, we, we should see a lot of cases decline that probably would have moved forward. Um, I will and, say, and, and, I don't know, one last thing, Sean, but yeah, please. Uh, it's, uh, right around the same time that the Ruin decision was, came down, I don't know if you saw this, uh, DOJ also announced a new task force up in the Northeast on opioid prescribing. So, uh, you know, certain categories of cases are definitely not going to move forward. I think, you know, the, the government's going to have to think long at these things. Uh, but at the same time, they're not backing down. I think they're still going to find different paths. Listen, I, I, I agree with you 100%. Yeah, you know, I mean, the Appalachian you know, uh, uh, task force that they have, the Northeastern task force. Listen, there's no doubt that there's an opioid crisis. We've, uh, you can go back to the eighties during the Reagan administration, you know, where it was just say, no, I remember all that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dating myself, but you know, you were um, two years old. And, and, that was yeah. <laughs> I, I wish, <laughs> um, but, you know, and then obviously through the 90s and in the Clinton administration, they were battling the opioid epidemic. But, you know, here's my thing. If you really want to get serious about the opioid epidemic, yeah, there's some bad apples out there in the medical field who are taking advantage of their ability to be prescribers. And they're doing things like what Dr. Khan was accused of. Again, it's an allegation you know, trading sex for drugs or trading guns for drugs or doing something boneheaded like that. But that's a tiny percentage of prescribers, at least in my, my opinion, right? Maybe 3% to 5% of all physicians out there are bad actors in that sense. But if you really want to get serious about the opioid situation in this country, you got to gain control of our borders, man. You got to gain control of the Southern borders where China is sending all of this manufactured, you know, synthetic fentanyl down into Mexico and they're using these mules to carry it over to board. And then it's finding its ways into our schools, into our, our, you know, suburbs. I mean, to me, you want to, you want to get serious about, you know, opioids, let, let's handle our border. And that's all I'm going to say about that. And that's not, that's, you know, I mean, that's just a fact. Well, you know, that it's sad because, I mean, it's, it's 
heartbreaking because you do see, you know, uh, throughout sort of the pandemic period and then and then continuing, you know, uh, upticks again in in the number of fatalities related to sort of opioids. And, and those are overwhelmingly coming from, you know, the fentanyl, which is really what we're talking about. And, um, you know, that that is hugely concerning. I think, you know, there's already been a sea change, I think, in, in how prescribers think about opioids. Um, you know, and, and just a good faith one, right? Not right. not a you know, knock my door down and, and arrest me. I think it's more when I was in the 90s, we were taught something different about pain treatment than I now understand is correct. And I and I think I think people have made that change already. I think you're gonna continue to see what I think of as more um, optimal sort of prescribing practice. But the only other thing I'd throw into the mix is just we have a shortage of properly trained pain doctors in the country, right? And I don't um, disagree at all. Yeah, because if, if you don't have well-educated, good pain doctors, somebody has to fill that gap, right? And it's going to be, you know, one of two, the small minority of bad actors, which is terrible. Because it creates, you know, lots of problems. Steve, people that want to operate in good faith, but who don't have the training to really know what they're doing. And you know, I've I've represented these small family practitioners in rural areas, who, um, you know, oftentimes are the only doctor around, you know, period, who are, you know, honestly just doing their level best to deal with, you know, the coal worker, you know, who has enormous back problems or, you know, the uh, laborer who, who at 62, you know, has, you know, uh, you know, no cartilage in their knees and the like. And, uh, you know, those aren't easy jobs. If you have the right training, they're almost impossible jobs when general practice. And so, you know, from a public policy standpoint, encouraging, you know, folks to be out in those areas as physicians and having the proper training would help a hell of a lot too, in my view. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. And, you know, I, I relate to that because I live in a small town in South Georgia. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I was telling you before we got started, you know, I had dinner this past weekend with um, a, a good friend of our families who's a primary care physician. And he said, you know, I'm still nervous about prescribing. Right. Because mm -hmm. I don't want, you know, somebody saying, oh, I'm an over prescriber, but I feel more comfortable now, you know, in prescribing a greater quantity like before he would only prescribe seven he would never go above seven you know pills whatever it was and he's like you know i i yep. felt terrible about it because i know that you know i got to treat their breakthrough pain right and and that's not handled with one or two pills but you know it's my dea license on the line it's my livelihood on the line it's my right. freedom that's on the line he said but i feel a little bit better now so for me I look at this in closing, Colin. I look at this as saying, I think the 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 Supreme Court decision, at least for Rwan, mm -hmm. I think is a huge win, not only for physicians who are good, honest, authorized prescribers, but for the patients who have been needlessly suffering because they couldn't get the the the, the pain medications that they really needed in order to be able to function. And again, I, you know, I use the word function in a very loose term because, you know, I, I, I've had, unfortunately, a bunch of surgeries and 
you know, I've taken uh, whatever it is, a Percocet or something like that. And I've had one and it's like, I'm out of my mind. And I'm like, how do people even function? But I get it. You know, yeah. you build a tolerance and, you know, it is what it is. But um, Colin, any any closing thoughts for our physicians, our prescribers who are listening to this podcast today? Any Any takeaways from a legal perspective that you want them to bear in mind as they go forward from here yeah so you know i think uh, the ruin decision is definitely a sea change i think for anybody that is in the sort of controlled substances sort of space uh, it should be in terms of uh, putting people into a better spot who are acting in good faith but the standard admonitions still apply right for anybody who's listening to this the best way to make sure that even your subjective good faith cannot be questioned. You to kind of, you know, do a good job with your notes to, to really, you know, take that extra 90 seconds uh, when you're filling out the chart, right? And you're going through things and actually put on paper what it is that, of course, you're thinking in the moment, because I guarantee you, this is not sort of the final, you know, uh, thing in this saga. Uh, we're going to see the government come back and repackage theories. We're going to see... Uh, you know, some still borderlines. And so this is good news, but continue to really do um, everything you can uh, with the records to make yourself bulletproof. That's awesome. Great takeaway guidance. All right. That's going to bring us to the end of this episode of the compliance guy. It's been such an honor and, and privilege to hang out with my friend, Colin Callahan of Flannery Gorgalis. I will make sure that I give you all a link to uh, Colin's personal uh web page where you can read more about his incredible background as a former prosecutor and all the great things he's doing fighting the good fight on behalf of providers all over this great nation as always thank you all so much for tuning in logging on and hanging out with us just for a little while we'll be back tomorrow with our final episode of the week so until then be good to yourself but more importantly be good to each other take care You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy. <laughs>